Well, happy Easter, everyone. My name's Matt, and I'm a pastor here at Friendship Church. And I'm so glad that you are joining us today for this service, which is really taking place in your living room. As you join your living room to dozens of other living rooms that are worshiping Jesus with us this morning. Lori asked earlier if you might be watching us in pajamas or if you're watching us all dressed up. I think it'd be interesting if in the chat of this live stream, you let us know, are you a pajamas family? Are you a pajamas person? Or are you all dressed up for Easter this, today? Friends, remember, there's no clothing judgment as a part of the body of Christ. And so just let us know how you're dressed, what you're doing this morning, because we're just glad that you're here with us worshiping on this Easter morning. We're starting a new sermon series on Easter. It's called, He is Able. It is about our God who is incredibly able. And our theme verse for this, it comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And it says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This verse says that Jesus is powerfully at work within us. He's powerfully at work and he is able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine and he is doing that in us, this verse says. And that's what we're going to be looking at in this sermon series entitled, He is Able. We're going to look at how He is able to forgive us of all of our sins. And how He is able to remove all shame from our life. And how He is able to give us a complete and total brand new life. We are going to look at the fact that our God is able. And He is powerfully at work in us. Today on this Easter morning, we're going to look at how because Jesus rose from the dead, we can be forgiven of our sins and be saved from what we deserve because of those sins. Would you pray with me as we prepare to look at God's word together? Jesus, as we come to you on this very unusual Easter morning, we recognize that none of our current circumstances change the fact that 2,000 years ago, you got up out of the grave, that you changed the world forever. You defeated sin, you defeated death, you purchased new life for your people. Jesus, we praise you because you not only have changed the world, you've changed our lives. That your incomparably great power is at work in us who believe and that you are making us new, and for that we are thankful. Open our hearts and minds now to what you would speak into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, on this Easter Sunday morning, Easter has been stripped down to the bare minimum, hasn't it? There are no large family gatherings where we get together with all of our extended family. My wife and I, we had an opportunity every year to go to her sister's house for Easter. We're not going this year. And you're not going to your large family gatherings either. There are no community Easter egg hunts. It would be a cold morning for hunting Easter eggs, but kids love that. But they're all canceled this Easter. 
And we don't have an opportunity to come here together as a church and enjoy a premium continental breakfast together in between services. It's a highlight of Easter, having some of that breakfast with some of you every Easter. But we don't have an opportunity to do that this year. One of the things that I miss most about Easter this year is that we don't have an opportunity to participate in that traditional responsive saying in which I declare to you, He is risen. And you say in response, He is risen indeed. I thought maybe we could do a little bit of this with the chat in the live stream this morning. Maybe I can declare He is risen, and instead of yelling at your televisions, you guys can all type in, He is risen indeed, and we'll all type it at the same time. Are you ready for this? Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and He is risen. And I hope that right now, the chat is blowing up with people saying, He is risen indeed, because that is what we celebrate this Easter Sunday morning. But what if he didn't rise from the dead? You heard me right. What if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? My daughter was sitting next to me as I wrote those words as I was preparing this sermon. And she just looked over and out of context saw those words, what if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? And she said to me, but he did rise from the dead. What are you saying, Dad? What are you teaching people? I think she was joking, but she she had a little bit of concern about the direction that I was going to head this morning with you. Friends, I'm not saying Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I'm saying, what would be true if he didn't rise from the dead? That's the hypothetical question that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, when he says, And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What is true if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Paul says here, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then friends, take your faith and throw it in the garbage can. On top of that, we're all liars because the message that is the center of what we proclaim, it's all a farce. And most importantly, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he says, you're still in your sins and your ultimate destiny is just to perish. That's what is true if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Doesn't that all sound depressing? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you're still in your sins. What does that mean, you're in your sins? to use language that we're all familiar with in our world right now. The Bible teaches that each and every one of us has the disease of sin. We are in our sin. We have the disease of sin. What is this sin, this disease that we have? The Bible teaches us that sin is acting in selfishness to break God's commands. 
Let me repeat that. Sin is acting in selfishness to break God's commands. We see this kind of sin in the very first pages of the Bible. When God makes Adam in Genesis chapter 2, we are told, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. God says to Adam, have at it. Enjoy the garden. Eat from any tree. But there is this one tree that I don't want you to eat of. This begs the question, doesn't it? Why did God put a tree in this garden of paradise that Adam and Eve weren't supposed to eat from? I think the answer is because it was in this one tree that Adam and Eve could show their love for God by putting him first. In every other area in the garden, Adam and Eve could do whatever they wanted, eat from whatever tree they wanted. But in this one area, God said, I want you to put me first. You may want to eat from the tree, but I don't want you to. And I'd like you to put me first. Well, of course, Adam and Eve put themselves first. And they ate from the tree. And in Genesis chapter 3, we read, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the first sin. It is recorded in the first pages of Scripture, and we see in it the root of what sin is all about. First of all, sin is about selfishness. They had an opportunity to put God first in the request that he made, excuse me, in the commandment that he made. But instead, Adam and Eve looked at that fruit and they said, but we want it. And they decided to do what they wanted instead of what God wanted. And at the root of all all sin is that selfishness. But we also see here that at the root of sin is disobeying God. God gave them a command, and any time we break one of God's commands, that's sin. And it makes sense that sin is all about selfishness and all about breaking God's commands. Because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, all of God's commands are about what? They're about how we love God and love others. And so it makes sense that if we act in selfishness, we'll be breaking God's commands that are all about acting in love instead of selfishness. And when we break God's commands, it isn't shocking that we're acting in selfishness because God's commands are all about love. What is sin? Sin is acting in selfishness to break God's commands. And the Bible declares that the disease of sin has spread to each and every human being. If you don't believe that, just look back through history books at the hundreds of millions of people who have died in wars because of the sin and selfishness of mankind. Just turn on the news and see how people are treating each other. Look at the state of families in our country and the abuse and separation that are taking place in families. You don't believe that the disease of sin has affected all of us? Take two three-year-olds 
and put them in a room and put one cookie between the two of them and see what happens. You don't believe the disease of sin has impacted us, has affected all of us? Take two shoppers and put them in a room and put one package of toilet paper between the two and see what happens. The disease of sin has impacted each and every person. I knew I was infected with the disease of sin at a very young age because of the way that I treated my sister. Something inside me knew that I should treat my sister with love and care. And yet, when we spent time together, so often I acted in selfishness, trying to get her to do the things I wanted her to do, even bossing her as an older brother. I acted towards her in selfishness instead of love and care. And it was a sign to me, even at the earliest of ages, I have this disease of sin. And friends, I have seen it thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times since then in my life. Do you see the disease of sin? The selfishness that breaks God's commands in your own life? The Bible says the news is even worse for me. Because I am infected with the disease of sin, I don't get to be a part of the heavenly creation that God is making It's a heavenly creation that will be totally free from sin. And as long as I have the disease of sin in me, I can't be a part of that. The Bible declares that God is making a new heaven and a new earth in which there is no sin, no hate, no injustice, no love, no coveting, no selfishness, no lying, no violence, no power trips, no worry, no insecurity, no sin, or any of its byproducts. But friends, as long as I have the disease of sin on me, I can't be a part of that environment that is totally sin-free. As long as I have sinned, I can't be around a perfectly holy and righteous God who cannot be around sin. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 declares to us that if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, then I'm still stuck in my sins. And I can never be a part of that amazing heaven that God is creating. This is terrible news, isn't it? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it's all terrible news. We're stuck in our sins. There is no new life for us. There is no eternity with God and all that is good. And so it is important for us to get to the next verse in what we are covering. Because the next verse starts with this all-important word. It's the word, but. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is the great news, my friend. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we're stuck in our sins. Then there is no new life for us. But that isn't reality. Reality is is that Christ got up out of the grave and because he got up out of the grave, we can be forgiven our sins. His spirit will fill us. We can live in his fruit. We can live in new life with him forevermore because Christ got up out of the grave. Friends, recognize that great news. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're stuck in our sins and our ultimate destiny is to perish. But because Jesus rose, because those are the facts of the case, 
we can be forgiven and have new life in him. And those are the facts of the case. I'd like to take just a minute and have you watch an animated video that an organization called Reasonable Faith put together that outlines the facts about Jesus rising from the dead. It's an animated video, and so it'll be a little more entertaining than if I run through these facts. And the guy doing it has a wonderful accent, much better than listening to me. So just take a moment and watch this video about the facts of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Why was Jesus of Nazareth crucified? Because he made outrageous claims about himself. He claimed to be the one and only Son of God. Why would anyone take his claim seriously? Well, that all depends. If Jesus actually rose from the dead, then his claim to be God's unique Son carries considerable weight. On the other hand, if the resurrection never actually happened, then Jesus may be safely dismissed as just another interesting but tragic historical figure. Did Jesus rise from the dead? As we explore this question, we need to address two further questions. What are the facts that require explanation? And which explanation best accounts for these facts? There are three main facts that need to be explained. The discovery of Jesus' empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus alive after his death, and the disciples' belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Let's examine each of these. Fact number one. The discovery that Jesus' tomb was empty is reported in no less than six independent sources, and some of these are among the earliest materials to be found in the New Testament. This is important because when an event is recorded by two or more unconnected sources, historians' confidence that the event actually happened increases, and the earlier these sources are dated, the higher their confidence. Moreover, the Gospels indicate that it was women who first discovered that Jesus' body was missing. This is likely historical because in that culture, a woman's testimony was considered next to worthless. A later legend or fabrication would have had men make this discovery. Our confidence in the empty tomb is further increased by the response of the Jewish authorities. When they heard the report that the tomb was found empty, they said that Jesus' followers had stolen his body, thereby admitting that Jesus' tomb was, in fact, empty. Most scholars, by far, hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. Fact number two, the appearances of Jesus alive after his death. In one of the earliest letters in the New Testament, Paul provides a list of witnesses to Jesus' resurrection appearances. He appeared to Peter, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Finally, he appeared also to me. Furthermore, various resurrection appearances of Jesus are independently confirmed by the Gospel accounts. On the basis of Paul's testimony alone, virtually all historical scholars agree that various individuals and groups experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. It may be taken as historically certain 
that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Fact number three, the disciples' belief in the resurrection. After Jesus' crucifixion, his followers were devastated, demoralized, and hiding in fear for their lives. As Jews, they had no concept of a Messiah who would be executed by his enemies, much less come back to life. The only resurrection Jews believed in was a universal event on Judgment Day after the end of the world, not an individual event within history. Moreover, in Jewish law, Jesus' crucifixion as a criminal meant that he was literally under God's curse. Yet somehow, despite all of this, the disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that God had raised Jesus from the dead. They were so completely convinced that, when threatened with death, not one of them recanted. Even the Pharisee Paul, who persecuted Christians, suddenly became a Christian himself, as did Jesus' skeptical younger brother, James. Some sort of powerful, transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. That is why, as an historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. These three firmly established facts cry out for an adequate explanation. How do you make sense of them? Down through history, various naturalistic explanations have been offered to explain away these facts. The conspiracy hypothesis, the apparent death hypothesis, the hallucination hypothesis, and so on. All of these have been nearly universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The simple fact is that there is just no plausible naturalistic explanation of these three facts. The explanation given by the original eyewitnesses is that God raised Jesus from the dead. If it's even possible that God exists, then that explanation cannot be ruled out. For a God who is able to create the entire universe, the odd resurrection would be child's play. An empty tomb, Jesus' appearances alive after his death, and a group of dejected followers suddenly transformed by a radical new belief in a risen Messiah. These are independently established historical facts. How do you explain them? This is great information in this six-minute video clip. But I recognize that for many of you out there, the greatest evidence that Jesus got up out of the grave and rose from the dead is the fact that you abide in relationship with him each and every day of your life. That he is a living Savior with whom you interact each and every day. That you know he is risen because he is at work in your life. Because Jesus died and rose from the dead. We can be forgiven our sins. We can have new life in him. And we can be saved from the penalties of sins that our, that our sins deserve. How is it 
that Jesus can cure us of the disease of sin and bring us this amazing forgiveness? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 talk about how we can receive this forgiveness. It says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. How can we be saved? Well, let's start with how we can't be saved. We cannot be saved by our works. When you talk to people, there are a number of people who believe that if there is a heaven, one day they will be there because in this cosmic balance scale, They'll have done more good than bad. And if they can do 51% good to 49% bad, they're confident that if there's a heaven, they'll be there. But if you ask them where they are currently in that balance, almost no one can answer that question. Are you 60-40 to the good? Are you 80-20 to the bad? Most people don't know where they are in that balance. Not only that, when you talk to people, most people don't know how much a good deed or a bad deed is worth on that great balance scale. If I see you and I offer you a stick of gum, that's a good deed that goes on that good side of the balance scale. But if I don't like you and I intentionally run over you with my car, that's a bad deed that goes on the bad side of the balance scale. One good deed, one bad deed. Do those equal each other? Giving you a stick of gum and running you over intentionally with my car because I don't like you? Probably not. But nobody seems to know how many points a particular good or bad work is worth in this great balance. Which is okay. Because God says this idea that our entire life can be measured on a balance and that we can get to heaven if the good outweighs the bad is false. Our God is totally and completely holy. The heaven, the new heaven and the new earth that he is creating for us are completely free from the disease of sin. And so if there is even the hint of sin that is a part of our life, we can't be with him and we can't be in this heaven. That's why James chapter 2, verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. If we sin in just one place, we can't be a part of this perfect heaven that God has established. And friends, I haven't, stu I haven't stumbled at just one point. I have stumbled at thousands upon thousands upon thousands of points. And so what hope is there for me? What hope is there for me that my sins could be forgiven and that I could be saved? The answer from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is that there is no hope whatsoever in my works, but that there is hope in the grace of God. It's by grace you have been saved. What is grace? Put simply, grace is a gift that I don't deserve. Grace is when I receive a gift that I don't deserve. I've told you before about a time when I tried to teach my son, who was eight or nine at the time, about this concept of grace. It was a Saturday morning and our family was hanging out together. And as we were spending time together on this particular Saturday morning, my son had gotten up on the wrong side of the bed. 
And everything that we were asking him to do, he was intentionally trying to do the opposite. I had reached the very end of what I could take from him on this particular Saturday. And as we gathered for brunch, he was taking his knife and taking the blunt end of the knife and over and over again, ramming it into the table. I walked into the kitchen and I said to him, Isaiah, I don't want you to hit the table with that knife one more time or you're going to be going to your room on this beautiful summer's day and spending the afternoon in your room cleaning it instead of hanging out outside with your friends. When my son was younger, he had the kind of room that was often in a state where it would take an entire afternoon, sometimes an entire day, to clean it. I don't know if there's any kids who are watching me right now who have a room that is in that state where it would take an entire afternoon to clean it. Maybe there are adults watching right now whose room is in that place where it would take an entire day to clean it. Well, my son looked at me after I told him not to hit the table one more time, and he lifted that knife up, and he pounded that blunt side down into the table again, and I said, all right, let's go. And we went up to his room, and I closed the door, and I said, you're going to be in here until this room is clean. You're going to be in here all afternoon. About an hour later, I was downstairs reading in a chair and my son came down the stairs towards me and I could tell that he had been crying. And as he approached me on the chair, he climbed up into the chair and he wrapped his arms around me and through tears he said, Dad, I am sorry for disobeying you. And then he got down off of the chair, turned around and went back upstairs, closed the door and continued to clean his room. Now, parents, most of the time I would say that if you've put discipline forward for a kid, you've got to stick with that discipline. But in this particular situation, I saw an opportunity to perhaps teach a different lesson. And so I went up to my son's room because I thought that the sorrow that he showed was genuine sorrow. Not, not I'm sorry I'm stuck in my room while my friends are playing outside, but genuine sorrow. I am sorry for what I did. And so I went up to his room and I told him, Isaiah, here's what I'd like to have happen. I want you to go outside and play with your friends and have a good time this afternoon. And he said to me, but, but Dad, I'm not done cleaning my room. i, I got to spend the afternoon cleaning my room because of disobeying you. And I told him, yes, Isaiah, your room does need to get cleaned, but I'm going to clean it for you. And I want you to go outside and play with your friends. Well, of course, he looked at me like it was a trick. How could it not be? But I explained to him again, no, really, I want you to go outside and play with your friends. I'm going to clean your room. And after I explained it a couple of more times and convinced him this isn't a trick, sure enough, he headed outside. And he had a great time that afternoon riding bikes and playing airsoft wars and whatever else boys of that age did. And when the afternoon was over, he came back in. And he gave me another giant hug. And he said to me, Dad, thank you for cleaning my room and letting me go outside. And I said, let's sit down and have a talk. And we sat down and we talked about what grace is all about. What did he deserve? What he deserved was to be disciplined. 
He deserved punishment for what he did, to be in his room cleaning it all afternoon. But because someone else was willing to take that punishment for him, he got to have blessing of going outside and playing with his friends. Friends, isn't that the exact situation that we're in? We have been saved by the amazing grace of God who has through his son Jesus Christ taken the punishment that we deserved, the wages of our sins, what we rightly deserve for our sins is death, separation from God, and all that is good forever. But Jesus took that punishment upon himself on the cross so that we could have new life in him, so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be saved. We can now have all of those astounding blessings, including dwelling forever with God in heaven. We didn't earn them. We don't deserve them. But we have them by God's amazing grace. We can't be saved by our works, but we can be saved by God's amazing grace. And that gift of God's great grace and his salvation comes to us, this verse says, through faith. Right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. Friends, what is faith? Hebrews chapter 11, 1 defines what faith is for us. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What is faith? It's assurance and conviction. It is a belief in the very core of my being that is so strong that it is assurance and conviction in regard to what I don't see and what I haven't yet experienced. What is faith, you guys? Faith is the fact that I can't see God right now, but I have full assurance and conviction that he is with me. What is faith? Faith is the fact that I didn't see Jesus risen from the dead with my own eyes, but I am here today worshiping him as my risen Lord and Savior with full assurance and full conviction. What is faith? Faith is, even though I have not yet seen my heavenly home that God has prepared for me, it is the fact that I have full assurance and conviction that it exists and that God will bring me there through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And that kind of faith changes how we live. Uh, I think I've told you before that when my wife and I moved into our house, it was the first week in February. There was two feet of snow throughout the yard and it was five degrees. And yet the first thing that we did is we went to the store and we bought a lawnmower. We'd moved into our house from an apartment, so we didn't have a lawnmower. And yet, even though it was five degrees with two feet of snow all over the yard, the first thing we did was go and buy a lawnmower. Why? The yard's covered in snow. It's five degrees out. We went and bought a lawnmower because we had faith. We had faith that better weather would come one day, that it would get warmer, and that ultimately that snow would melt, and that our grass would grow, and that we would need to cut it. Now, sometimes in Minnesota, having faith for that day when the weather gets better is a challenge. But we had that faith, assurance and conviction that that better weather was coming. That's faith through which God's gracious gift of salvation comes. 
full assurance and conviction in who Jesus is. That he is God in the flesh. That he is the one and only Son of God. That that he is the one through whom our sins can be forgiven because of what he did on the cross. And that he has been, that he rose to new life so that we too will rise one day and dwell forever with him. That's faith. Faith is always accompanied in the scripture by repentance. When we have faith, the Bible says we repent. Repentance is when we turn away from a life that is lived according to my priorities and my agenda. And instead I say, Jesus, my life is entirely about your priorities and your agenda. I heard someone recently say, it's like before we repented, we were driving our car of life. And we were going where we wanted to go, and we were doing the things we wanted to do. But when we experienced genuine faith in Jesus Christ, and we believed who he really is, King of kings and Lord of lords, the rightful leader of my life, we got out of the driver's seat, and we went and sat in the back seat And Jesus took the wheel in our life. And now our life is entirely dedicated to where Jesus wants us to go and what he wants us to do because that's what faith produces in our life. Real faith always leads to repentance in which we turn away from our old lives of sin and self and turn to Jesus. And the question that I have for you this morning is, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? The most famous verse in the Bible is John chapter 3, verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We don't have to perish. We don't have to be in our sins any longer because Jesus got up out of the grave. And if we will believe in him, trust in him, if our lives will, be, will no longer live for self, but instead will be lived for him, we can have eternal life. But we have to place our faith, we have to believe in Jesus, who this verse says is the one and only Son of God, God in the flesh, who came and died for our sins and rose to new life so that we could be forgiven. Have you ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ? That's the first of our discussion questions today. Have you ever repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus? And friends, in a moment when this service is over, these discussion questions are going to come back up And you're going to have an opportunity to walk through them. If you're by yourself, you can walk through them in prayer, journal them with with the Lord. But if you're with your family, I'd invite you to take some time and answer these questions together, parents and kids all together. Spend some time answering these questions. But right now, I'd like to call your, your attention to the very first question. Have you ever repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus. This passage promises that if you have, you have moved from perishing to eternal life. Friends, if today is that day 
when you receive the amazing gift of God, the gift of faith in your life, and you trust in Jesus Christ, your sins will be forgiven, and you will be made new in Him. Is this that day? If it is, will you call out to Jesus right now for His forgiveness of your sins? Call out to Jesus and place your faith in Him. Lord, my life is no longer my own. My life is in your hands. Do with it as you will. I want to take a moment and in silence give you an opportunity to just reflect on where you are in your relationship with God. Father, we come before you today and we say thank you for sending your Son. Jesus, we say thank you for going to the cross on our behalf, recognizing that you took our sin and our punishment, but then you got up out of the grave, proving your identity as the one and only Son of God, as God in the flesh, who has the ability to forgive our sins and declare us to be new. Lord, we are thankful for that work in our lives. And as we come here before you now, we get on our knees. We worship you. We declare that everything we are and everything we have belongs to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Those discussion questions are going to come up again in a minute at the end of our service. But before they do, there are a couple of other ways that we want to worship God in these final few minutes of our service together. One is that we want to praise his name. And the worship team is going to lead us in a song that declares that Jesus is the ultimate and final authority, that the cross and his resurrection from the grave have had the final word and that we have been forgiven because of his work and we have new life in him. But we also, during this time, want to declare our love and our faith in God by giving to him of our financial resources. As I've mentioned in this live stream, of course, we can't give in person as we normally do. And so you'll want to go to our website. And you can go to the very top of that page where there is a, a tab that's marked giving. Or you can do so on the Smart Giving on the Friendship app. Or you can always mail in your offering if that's more your speed. Uh, friends, whatever way that we give our offering, we want to continue to worship God and express our love to him through that offering. And by singing his praises, let's do that together right now. The cross has a final word. The cross has a final word. Sorrow darkest night but the cross has the final word the cross has the final word the cross has the final word evil may put up its strongest fight, but the cross has the final word. 
Father, thank you for this time together that we can celebrate who you are. We can celebrate what you've done for us. Jesus, we celebrate you and we thank you. May we be reminded over and over again of all that you've done. What a celebration. No matter what's going on, what a celebration this is. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Have an amazing week. There's nothing stronger, nothing higher, nothing greater than the name of Jesus. Oh
来人，那地